Well, good morning again. It's, uh, we've been in David now. This is already our third week, and we talked about the rise of David. We were introduced to him as, as he was anointed king, and then last week he was on the run and uh, really running for his life from King Saul. And, and then, if you remember, towards the end of last week, David was given a town called Ziklag in, in the land of the Philistines, which was the enemy, right? And so, in Ziklag, he had come back, and everything in Ziklag was gone. David's everything from, from their wives and children to all their possessions to all their animals had been, had been taken. And so here they sit, and they are distraught, and then God says, hey, go after these, this enemy that did this. And David and the 600 men, even though they were, they were talking against him, talking about killing him, they went and they got not only the possessions back that they had, but they got back even more. They brought back more than they ever had. And I just picture David in this moment sitting around the campfire. And they have been victorious. They, they won. Him and his 600 men are feeling good about themselves, even though they're living in the land of the Philistines and in the enemy land. And here they are, sitting around the campfire, making s'mores, whatever they're doing, talking about the battle that day. And, and all of a sudden, while they're sitting there in sick life, David's life is about to change forever. And this messenger comes running into Ziklag. And he finds David, and he tells David, there's a battle going on. And in the battle, your friend Jonathan has died, Saul's son. And not only Jonathan, but also King Saul. And so here David, sitting around the campfire, celebrating this victory, all of a sudden, everything in his life is about to change. Now, you would think he's going to be pretty happy with this, right? He's the anointed king. He's the next in line. But man, for almost two years now, he's been on the run, running for his life. And now all of a sudden, it's like, what do you do? I've got these 600 men. We've got our, our wives and children. Do we, do we just stay here? Or do I go back and, and claim the throne? Well, God speaks to David and says, you need to go back. So David, in that moment, makes this decision that, yes, he is supposed to be the next king. And so he goes back to the land of Israel. It's, his home place, and he goes to the land of Judah, and he claims Judah. And now the problem is that actually three of Saul's sons died in the battle, but there was still one still alive. His name is Ishbosheth, and he was still alive, and he claimed the kingship of Israel. But Judah and his men they go they go to Judah, or I'm sorry, David and his men go to Judah, and he becomes the king of Judah. So now we've got the split kingdom. And you know, that's never very healthy. It, in the United States, we have to go all the way back to the Civil War to have this, this split nation, right? And there's nothing good going on there. But David continues to fight. And that's been David's life, right? He's always been a warrior and a fighter. And so they continue to fight. And, and it's over several chapters. There's lots of stuff happening. But basically, David eventually fights against Israel and he claims. Israel and Jerusalem, and he unites Israel again. And, and so here David is now the king of Israel. And just, boom, just like that. Now, a few years went by. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground, but now David is the king. 
And things are going really well for David. Even though Ishbosheth came in and claimed the kingship, the people, the Israelite people, they really favored David. And I know you're talking about the psalm. That was a pretty popular song today. Everyone loved David, right? Saul had killed his thousands. David had killed his ten thousands. And now that guy, the warrior, is now on the throne. He is the king. So they're celebrating this. And after they become the United Nations, they have a few battles here and there. They defeat the Philistines pretty, pretty decisively. And now they are at peace and things are really, really good. And David decides at this point that it's time to do something huge. And that is to bring the glory of God back into Israel. And, and how would you do that in that day and time? Well, there is this thing called the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had been part of the Israelites from the very beginning, right when they came out of Egypt. Within a year, they built this Ark of the Covenant. And so David, at this point, wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the capital city, to basically say, look, the glory of God is back. The glory of God is here in Israel. Now, this is really kind of a, an act of humility for David. Because you have to think about it. Kings in that day and time were very arrogant. Kings today are very arrogant. <laughs> I, I think of it as, as a professional athlete, maybe a baseball player, maybe a football player, whatever. When they do something good, they score a touchdown, what do they do? They bang themselves on the chest. You've seen it. But they're pretty proud of themselves. They're making sure everyone knows, I did it, right? And I imagine David, the warrior, was pretty much, you know, you're in the middle of battle. You're banging yourself from your chest. You're pretty proud of what you did. The people of Israel, they're all looking at David as their hero. And so in this act, David's saying, listen, I'm not the hero here. God is. And so we need to honor God, not me. And so I, I want to read a couple things. This is actually written during Solomon's time. You say it's son. Uh, but I love this, this thought. And so Solomon's dedicating the temple, which the Ark of the Covenant would be the center, being the holy and holiest of the temple. And, and Solomon is praying. And then God responds to Solomon's prayer with these words. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Jesus' brother James said in, in chapter 4, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. It, and you have this picture here that David, the king, warrior king, is now lowering himself. He's humbling himself. And he's pointing to God. He wants God to be the center of Israel. Now, David is not perfect. <laughs> Let's all acknowledge that. You, you can read through 1 and 2 Samuel. Read, you can read through 1 Kings. And you can find all kinds of mistakes that David makes. He is not perfect. But in the midst of that, his heart is good. And, and really, that's what God's looking at, right? When God... Wants David to be king. He says, look, David has a heart. I didn't say David's actions are always perfect. He said that David has a heart like mine. And, and so in this moment, David shows this desire to humble himself before God and to point to God. 
to, to make God the center of his life and Israel. And so he's doing this for the Ark and the Covenant. And we need to understand what the Ark and the Covenant is. If you've got a church your whole life, you've probably heard of the Ark of the Covenant. But basically, one year after they escaped Egypt, remember God freed them from being slaves. And here they are. They're out in the desert, in the wilderness. And God commands Moses that they should build an ark. And the idea of this ark is they're going to build it. And it's going to represent the presence or the glory of God among his people. And so they were told very specifics how to build it. Basically, it was a wooden box, but it was all covered in gold. There it is. Actual picture. It was taken right before Harrison Ford found it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But so here's basically what it looks like. It's this wooden box, and it's got gold all around it. And then on the top, which I have to say, how impressive is it? That in that society, in that day, they didn't have all the technology we have, but they made something like that. And they made these gold statues on top of it, these angels with their wings touching. And so it's this beautiful thing. The thing on top of the angels there, it's called the mercies. And so it's this place that, that we know God exists, His presence is there, and on the top is the mercy seat, and that's where they got atonement. That's where they got their, their forgiveness. And then inside the box, what they put in there was Aaron's staff. Remember, Aaron was Moses' brother, and he was the first priest of Israel. So they took Aaron's staff, and they put that in the Ark of the Covenant, and then they put the tablets. The Ten Commandments are placed in this this covenant, they took a jar of manna. If you remember for the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, God provided every morning for them bread on the ground that they could pick up. And that bread was God's provision to them. God is providing. And so these are the three things that they put in the ark. That's what Harrison Ford was looking for. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if I'm guessing the manna might have been bad by then, but anyway, they were looking for it, trying to find it. And the ark in the real art, not Harrison's Ford's art, was carried by the priests. Only by the priests. Because there was something dangerous about God. Something dangerous about His presence that if someone literally touched the ark, they would die. And, and that seems crazy. And I remember even as a kid thinking, why would God do that? But there's something powerful about the arch. They carried it on their poles and only by priests. And so the ark Wherever the Israelites went for 40 years wandering, all their time conquering the promised land, the ark was always with them. The priest was always carrying it wherever they would move to. And, and, and so now we fast forward to, um, to Saul's time, actually right before Saul becomes king. And there's not much about the ark through all that time. And then we, we get to this point where we have judges. Time of judges before there's any kings. And there's this judge named Eli. He was a pretty good guy, but he wasn't a great guy. He actually mentored Samuel, which is a good thing, but he had these sons that were just horrible. His sons were, were very bad men. And, and during the time that Eli was judge and his sons were helping rule the land, the Israelites lost to the Philistines in battle. And after they lost to the Philistines in battle, they come back and, and some of the elders of Israel get together and go, why are we losing to the Philistines? We need some help. And one of them makes this suggestion. 
why don't you get the Ark of the Covenant and we will take it with us into battle. And that's what they did. And they were defeated again. In that defeat, the Philistines stole the Ark. And so now, Israel has not only lost, but they now no longer have the Ark. And Eli's daughter-in-law says it this way. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, she says, The glory of God has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And really, that's the significance here. Here you have this time of, they did not take God very seriously. And you remember, they wanted a king. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted an earthly king. So now the ark is gone. But, but the funny part is the ark goes to the land of the Philistines. And bad things start happening. They, they, first they take the ark and they put it in their God's house, the house of Dagon. And, and, and here they put it in. And, and Dagon was a great big idol. This big stone idol that they worshipped. And then they set the ark right next to them. It was like, they're, look what we did. We took this from the Israelites. Well, the next morning, their priests go into this, the house of Dagon. And the statue has fallen face down right in front of the ark. Like he's worshiping the ark. And then they set the statue back up and dust him off, make sure he's okay. And then they, they leave. The next morning, they come back in. And it once again, is fallen face down before the ark. But now it's arms and head have fallen off or broken off. And, and so... Here, the Ark of the Covenant is having its way with the God of the Philistines. And they're not very happy about it. Because after this happens, not only is their God, like, breaking apart, but they start to get sick. And they start to die. And a plague takes over the land of the Philistines. And they're like, it's got to be this crazy Ark that we took from the Israelites. Let's give it back to them. And they would, they would send it from one town to another, trying to get rid of it. Whatever town it went to, it would, the plague would break out there, too. And they were like, this is horrible. So they get together, and they decide, how, how do we get rid of this? And basically, the wise men say, Let, let's send it back to the, first, or to the Israelites. Let's give it back to them with lots of money and lots of presents. And let's get this out of our land. So that's what they do. They load up the ark, and then they take it, and they... Give it to this little town in Israel, probably the closest town to, to there, so you can just put it there and get out, right? And so here they take it to this little town, and it's called Beth Sheva. And here they receive the ark. Uh, but these Israelites probably didn't know much about the ark. They'd heard of it, they knew what it was, and they're pretty excited to come to their town. But the problem was they keep trying to look and see what's inside of it and touch it. And over 70 men die in this process. And they're like, oh, we don't want the ark either. This ark is powerful. What are we going to do with it? Because they didn't know how to handle it. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the people of Beth Shema say this. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord? This holy God. They cried out, where can we send the ark from here? And so they do. They send it on. And here they send it to a place called Hirur Jeremy. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's close enough. So, they send it to this place, and these people actually come and get the ark, because living there is a guy named Abinadab, and Abinadab is actually a priest. And, and so he comes, and his son watches over the ark. So they take it there, and now the ark is right here in this town, at Abinadab's house. And that's where it stays. 
Now, you have to go, what is the deal with this ark? <laughs> We're talking about God here, right? If people are dying, plagues are coming to towns where, where this ark is going. What is happening here? Well, if you go all the way back to Mount Sinai, and Moses, he goes up to Mount Sinai, and that's where he gets the Ten Commandments. And, and in that moment, when he's on Mount Sinai, I think one of the most significant things happens. He, he asks God if he can see him. Can I see you, God? And God literally tells Moses, no man can look at me without that. No man can look at me. So what he does for Moses is he passes in front of Moses as he puts his hand over Moses' eyes so he can't actually see him. He just feels and senses the presence and the glory of God. And, and what's interesting here is that God is so powerful that he's saying, you can't see me. A human being can't see me, but you can sense me. In fact, the ark later, as they built a temple, it went in the Holy of Holies, the very middle of the, of the temple. And they put that in, in there, in the middle of the Holy of Holies, and they had curtains covering it up. And the problem is once a year, a priest had to go in there and make a sacrifice and sprinkle blood over this Ark of the Covenant so they would, the whole nation would be forgiven of their sins. But they were so terrified of walking into the presence of God that the priest that went in, they literally tied a rope around his ankle. And so when he would go in, if he wasn't perfectly clean, if he wasn't perfect, he'd die in well, luckily, they had a rope tied around his ankle so they could just pull him out because they didn't want to go and get him because they were scared. And I just find all this so interesting that, that we talk about we have the glory of God. But we literally, we get the Spirit of God that lives in us today. And, and when you look back then, they didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had God in this in this symbol of the ark that went with them, the glory of God, the spirit of God went with them. But today we have this privilege of having the spirit with us just because we believe. And so all this to me makes sense because people, they wanted an earthly king. God wants to be their only king, if you remember. God didn't want to give them a king. They wanted. And so the ark through all of this time that they have Saul as king, is just off at Abinadab's house. It's out of sight, out of mind. But just like they've rejected God in his presence. And so it remains there through all of Saul's kingship. And, and then, a couple years after David becomes king, he goes, okay, now it's time to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, to make it the center, to make God's glory the center of Israel. And so they go and they get the ark and they begin to bring it. And once again, the ark was kind of tipping. The priests were doing a good job. And one guy reaches out to try to catch it. And boom, he dies. And it says that David feared the Lord. He was like, whoa, what are we going to do? So they left it right there for another three months. We're like, okay, how are we going to do this? Is this really what we want? We want this in the center of Jerusalem. David finally goes, yes, this is it. We need God in the midst of our people. And so after three months, David goes and the priests get it, and now they're going to walk the ark into Jerusalem. 
The priests are carrying it on the poles. And here's exactly what I'm going to read you guys. 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says, After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing of ram's horns. Doesn't sound like a big deal, but I just want to try to help you understand what David was doing here. You see, David was a king, okay? and he's, he's supposed to be dignified. But here he is, he makes the sacrifice, and then he dances with all his might, with a priestly garment. Basically, he was wearing kind of his, his underwear, basically, for lack of better understanding, dancing before the ark and all the people watching. And just to kind of help you give a visual, I actually put together a video to kind of help you just look what maybe what David looked like, if we can get that. He's on the top of the world. The ark is back in Jerusalem. 
It's like Israel is back in the glory of God has returned to Israel. David has been all day dancing half naked, having fun, and celebrating God. And he comes home. It says he came home that night with this excitement to come in and bless his family. Come in and goes, hey guys, what a great day it's been. God is back among us. Instead, he walks in and he's greeted by his wife at the door. And she wasn't happy. And you can imagine, he walks in, a little cold in the house. There wasn't dinner on the table. Things weren't ready for him. She just shows up angry. And when he walks in, she says, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Very sarcastic right there, just so you know. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls. He's going, she said, what is wrong with you? You're the king of Israel, and you act like this? Do you know how embarrassing this is to our whole nation, to our house? But I love David's response to his wife. And he's not very happy with her, in case you don't understand. He says, it was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father. I love that little insert there. Just a reminder, your dad was a good king. I am. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I, I don't know how to make that more significant. This is the king of a nation. This is a warrior that, that defeats other nations. And here he is standing before his wife saying, listen, when it comes to me worshiping God, when it comes to me making God the center of my life, I will absolutely humiliate myself. I will become even more undignified than this. And what's interesting is that I think back and, and all of us probably had mothers and fathers and when we went to church, quite often as a kid you did something like run in the sanctuary or, or maybe you weren't wearing the right clothes or you maybe danced when you weren't supposed to dance and you would hear we don't act like that in God's house. We don't run like that in the sanctuary. We don't do these things. And then I read this and I go, here's David, a man after God's own heart, going, you know what? When it comes to worshiping God, I will humiliate myself. I will be undignified. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about him. It's about worshiping him. And it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what the priests think or, or the wives think or, or whoever. It doesn't matter. All that matters in that moment is glorifying God and worshiping. God, and I believe it, the message says it like this, and everyone's why I like to read the messages. It makes it just so simple, but it says, David replied to Michael, in God's presence, I'll dance all I want. <laughs> oh, yes, I'll dance to God's glory more recklessly even than this. And as far as I'm concerned, I'll gladly look like But when it comes to 
serving God. When it comes to saying, you know what, I want God to be the center of my life, the center of my family, the center of our nation, I will humiliate myself. I will look like a fool. And, and so we look at this and we go, man, I know David wasn't perfect. He made so many mistakes. And we can go down the list of all the things he did wrong. But right in the heart of it, in the midst of it, his heart had a desire to be humble before God. And to put God at the center of everything he did. And I'll read to you again, 2 Chronicles 7, says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. If you're willing to humble yourself. And James says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I want to admit something to you guys. When I was in college, I am. Uh, I was very focused on, on me. I know that's pretty normal, but I, I grew up in a football family, and really all I cared about was playing football. Now, I'd become a Christian, and, and I was a religion major, and everyone knew me for that on campus, but really what I wanted to be is I wanted to be quarterback of the football team. <laughs> that's all I really wanted. And, and it's interesting, I, my first two years there, I was back up quarterback. I didn't get started. And all I wanted to do, you know, this sounds really bad, but... You know what I really wanted? Is at the beginning of the game, I wanted the loudspeaker to say, and starting at quarterback today is Chris Walton. That's what I wanted to hear that so badly. And that's not arrogant at all, believe me. But I, it was. But that's what I wanted. And, and then I, quite often, this is really embarrassing, but you guys get to hear it. David dance naked. So what I would do sometimes is I would go to the football stadium. And it was all locked up, but I found a little secret entrance. I could climb up the back of the grandstand and slip through this little fence, and I could get down on the football field at night when no one's out there. And I would, well, I'd play by myself, pretending like I was scoring touchdowns. My wife's laughing at me. No one else. <laughs> but I would go out there, and I'd imagine being the quarterback of the football team and winning the game, and the loudspeaker saying, Chris Walton scores another touchdown, you know? And then I went out there a lot. I, I loved that spot. And I'd go out there and pray sometimes, and I'd pretend like I was a good football player other times, but, but I loved that spot. I, as far as I know, no one else knew about it. And our stadium was pretty small, so I don't think it was a big stadium. But I, I loved being out there. And then my junior year comes. And I get to start. I'm going to be the starting quarterback. And, and we make it through all the, 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 the beginnings of stuff. We get to the first game. And I finally get to hear my name called over the speaker. And we score our first drive down the field. And I'm feeling like, yeah, look at this, Chris Walton. And the next time I go in, I get hit and I get hurt. I cracked a rib and separated my shoulder on one hand. But I refuse to tell anybody because <laughs> I didn't want to be taken out of the game. And so I stayed in. And I continued to play with these injuries. And, and then, in the fourth game of the season, I tore my rotator cuff. Now I couldn't pretend anymore. I was out. I couldn't play. And I was so angry. And I know this sounds silly coming from a 51-year-old man. But you know, when, you, when you're young, you start to think, man, I, this is what I want. This is who I am. And all I wanted to do was be the starting quarterback, and I'm hurt. Now someone else gets to be the starting quarterback. And so here I am, a Christian. And I decide, you know what? I know God can heal. 
And I'm not in the human. So I climbed up the back of the bleachers, slipped through my little thing, and I went to the center of the field and began to pray. God, I just want you to heal me. I just want to go to Go back and play football, and I want people to go, wow, look at this guy, look what he did. And I'm sitting there praying, and I think for the first time in my life, I felt God's presence. He said, This isn't about you. <laughs> it's not about you being the starting quarterback. It's not about anything with you. And in that moment, I still remember. Because it was just this moment you never forget. Like, just worship me. That's all you need to do. And I did that right there by myself. <laughs> My weird little place in the football field. I just worshiped God. And it was this time that I was going, you know what? I, I'm not who I thought I was. I, I can't be who I wanted to be. So maybe I just need to be who God wants me to be. And when I look at David's life, I go, man, David wasn't perfect. <laughs> and then we didn't know David had some arrogance. He had to. <clears throat> but really, at the heart of it, here they are bringing the glory of God into Jerusalem. What does David do? Man, he dances like no one's watching. Why? To honor God. He dances to honor God. And here he is. He's willing to lower himself to lift up God. We all have our own things that we hang on to. Our own tendencies to arrogance. But what God wants is for us just to worship him. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves it's not about me. It's about him. That Paul, I think, is going to come. He's going to just play for us. And while he's playing, I just want us to be quiet. You can just bow your heads and just listen. And I do believe that God meets us where we are. We're all in different places, but God meets us where we are. And at this time, my prayer is that God meets you right where you are. And you can just worship Him. Let's do that. Mm -hmm.